What's up, everybody? Welcome into another edition of the Murata Mode. I'm your host, Eddie Murata. In the last installment of the Murata Mode podcast, you heard me give my insight on Brandon Cooks being traded from the Pats to the Rams in one of the biggest offseason moves of the year. Well, since that point, the NFL world hasn't seen much more breaking news as teams prepare for the NFL draft in the coming weeks. But just because things have been a little quieter around the league doesn't mean that that'll keep me quiet too. I have a show full of great content today, including my mock draft 3.0 later on. But before we get there, I'd like to talk a little bit more about some of my winners and losers of the free agency period. Now, this isn't going to be the same as my top five teams after free agency list because that was a more of a power index uh, more than anything. But when breaking down these winners and losers, I'm simply going to look at which teams have started to make moves that will fill areas of need or have failed to do so. All right, let's get started. Winner. My first winner is the Cleveland Browns. With over $100 million of cap space and nine top 65 picks in the NFL draft, the Browns were in prime position to jumpstart an ongoing rebuild with a new-look front office that had been in need of a makeover for quite some time. After bringing in GM John Dorsey, who has had a great reputation around the league for the moves that he made with the Chiefs and the Packers, the Browns finally found their, quote, football guy for all of those who didn't like the analytics approach that they had taken in the past. With lots of real estate to start with, Dorsey was put into a position where he could overhaul the entire roster and start basically from scratch, which is exactly what he's done. Since the new league year began, the Browns haven't been shy about making moves. They spent a lot of money on beefing up their offensive line last year, so it was time to find talent on the perimeter starting March 14th. Boy, this was a busy day for the Cleveland Browns, and it started with them trading for Jarvis Landry, formerly of the Miami Dolphins. I really like this move, but not for the reason that a lot of other people do. Landry comes over to the Cleveland Browns and most expect him to be the number one receiver in Cleveland after leading the league in receptions last year. Yes, Landry led the league in receptions, but he failed to even eclipse the 1,000-yard mark. In contrast, the number two leader in receptions uh, in the league was Antonio Brown, and after missing the last two and a half games due to injury, Brown still surpassed 1,500 yards receiving on the year. While Brown is a number one guy who takes the top off defenses, Landry will tear you apart underneath. Averaging around eight yards per reception, Landry isn't going to be a huge threat down the field, but will still get you first downs or close to them, and I'm sure every coach will take that. In my mind, the Browns are banking on Josh Gordon to finally be a reliable number one target, showing flashes of greatness in the past, Gordon's off-the-field issues have so far derailed the early portion of a receiver's career, who many consider to be the best wideout talent since Calvin Johnson. If Gordon is back for the Browns next season, he is the clear-cut number one guy, and he should be. With his size and athleticism opening up underneath routes for Landry, this could be a deadly combo on the outside. And... This can also be a great way for the Browns to manage Corey Coleman's role as a number three receiver now 
and will hopefully work on some of the issues that he had dropping the football in the early stages of his young career. Signing Landry was a great move for the Browns to solidify their receiving core. Under center, the Browns let go of Deshaun Kaiser, Cody Kessler, and Kevin Hogan in the matter of weeks and brought in Tyrod Taylor from the Bills. For the short term, I think this was a good move as well for Cleveland. Taylor was never embraced by any of the Bills' regimes, and they seemingly couldn't get rid of him fast enough, so there's a case to argue that Taylor won't fare well in Cleveland either, but with a short contract and pieces around him, a guy who's won games with below-average talent in Buffalo should be a nice bridge to groom a rookie quarterback and allow him to get some experience while learning from a guy who's made his way around the league. Not a long-term answer, but someone who Cleveland fans will be able to embrace for a short period of time before handing over the reins to a hot QB prospect following this year. This was a solid move for the Browns. Aside from those big-name signings, the Browns found help in many other areas of need this offseason. Losing Isaiah Crowell to the Jets, Cleveland quickly signed Carlos Hyde from the 49ers, and many still believe that they could draft a running back to round out their backfield with Hyde and Duke Johnson. I see this as a major upgrade, especially if their snaps are managed right. After the retirement of Joe Thomas, left tackle will be an interesting position for Cleveland this year. They brought in Chris Hubbard and Donald Stevenson for some competition, but with an overall weak free agency market and less than ideal draft class for one of the most important positions in the game, this is a question mark that may hinder the progress in both the passing and the running games for the immediate future. It's a good thing that they signed a mobile quarterback, now that's for sure. Defensively, Trading away their top corner in Jason McCourty leaves a major hole in a secondary that already needed help. But acquiring Demarius Randall, EJ Gaines, and TJ Carey were a great start to providing depth in their secondary, and a great draft class of perimeter defensive talent should help round out those positions for the Browns for the future, even in the later rounds. As a whole, it seems like Dorsey and the Browns have a plan moving forward, and with the GM's success elsewhere, it's hard not to like the moves he's made so far. The Los Angeles Rams come in as another winner for me in free agency. I know that there have been knocks on coach Sean McVay for grabbing big-name players with character issues so early in his coaching career, but the fact of the matter is that these guys produce when they're on the field. The Rams had lots of question marks in their secondary, and this was their biggest area of concern when free agency started. In a matter of days, that need was filled by Marcus Peters and Aqib Talib, who, despite having large personalities, are regarded as two of the top corners in the entire league. With lockdown guys on both sides of the field, it's going to be very difficult for receivers to create separation, especially when the quarterback is being rushed by Aaron Donald and Ndamukin Sue up front. Sue comes over as a free agent from Miami on a one-year prove-it deal, and this may be the scariest of the Rams signings. With Donald already looking uh, like one of the best players in the entire league, period, and eating up double teams himself, Sue somehow will be one-on-one with opposing linemen for the first time since probably Pee Wee football. You can't double-team them both, 
and every week this season is going to cause headaches for coordinators planning against them. If the Rams find help on the edge, they could have themselves another fearsome four. With these signings, there are character questions, so I'd like to touch on that a little bit. While I do see the criticism of McVay, I'd also like to highlight that these players are all defensive players. On offense, which is McVay's specialty, players need to play with a bit more chemistry to make sure that plays time upright and run according to plan, especially in the system that they've established in LA. On the defensive side though, you have Uncle Wade Phillips, who's been around the league training guys to work within the system just as long as anybody, and personally, I'm totally okay with having guys that have a little snarl when they step on the field. It's just like what Mick said in Rocky. You have to have a little snarl when you throw a punch. And that's exactly what these guys are going to do. They're going to punch you in the mouth on that side of the ball. Defensive guys aren't supposed to be nice. And we know for a fact that these players produce just as good, if not better, than anyone in the league at their positions when they're between the lines on the field. Offensively, it's a totally different story, which brings me to my next point. It was said that the Rams vetted Odell Beckham Jr. and that they didn't really like what they heard coming from him or the Giants camp when thinking about making a trade for the star receiver. In this case, they passed on the player with question marks off the field and opted for Brandon Cooks. Cooks can stretch the defense almost as well as Beckham with his speed, and while he isn't as versatile, you know exactly what he brings to the table, both on and off the field. Still a big upgrade from Sammy Watkins, the Rams got a lot better offensively with the Cooks deal, and this should show you that the Rams aren't just going after the guys with character issues. Defensively, they don't care as much, but offensively, This is a great point to make from the franchise's standpoint to all those who questioned them. The Rams did lose some pieces in free agency, most notably linebackers Robert Quinn and Alec Ogletree, and these will be big losses for them next season. Both players were extremely talented and were some of the top performers on the team in recent years, but with help on both the defensive front and the back end to make up for it, this allows the Rams to get younger and develop emerging talent at the linebacker position throughout the season. While their big-name signings are short-term, the Rams could be a force in their division in 2018. Next up, I have the Philadelphia Eagles. I know this one is pretty straightforward because they won the Super Bowl, but Philly didn't sit back and get complacent with the roster they had. In the NFC East, a division with the Cowboys, Giants, and Redskins, the Eagles are defending champs and the only team in their division to make a splash for the right reasons in the new league year. Think about it. The Giants have been in the news for off-the-field issues with OBJ, they lost Jason Pierre-Paul, and they have a lot of work to do entering a rebuild following a 3-13 season. The Redskins lost Kirk Cousins and Terrell Pryor in the offseason, and while Pryor wasn't a huge factor in their offense, and some may say the team got better by adding Alex Smith at quarterback, his window is closing a lot faster than the younger Cousins, and both of them really have a similar ceiling. 
The fact of the matter is that the Redskins still have a lot of work to do to get to the Eagles level, and this offseason was a slow start to be considered a contender in the division. Dallas didn't have as much work to do this offseason, but lingering issues with Des Bryant have seemingly preoccupied them in upgrading the defensive side of the ball where they need more help when facing high-powered offenses like the Eagles. With Zeke coming back this year, I do believe Jerry Jones was right in saying that the gap between the Cowboys and the Eagles is a lot smaller than people think, but Dallas's main issue is that they were unusually quiet. While the champ Eagles, who many expected to be quieter, weren't, and they didn't hesitate in rearming for 2018. So let's look at the Eagles' moves. Obviously the big one for Philly was the trade that they made for Michael Bennett. Adding to an already outstanding defensive line, Bennett is surely an upgrade over Vinnie Curry, who they quickly dealt to Tampa Bay after the trade with Seattle. Entering the later stages of his career, Philly's rotational system will allow Bennett to play at maximum effort for about 35 to 40 snaps a game. The Eagles also added Holodi Nada to solidify the interior of their defensive line. Although people look at this as Philly going out and signing a big-name player, I really like the move. Obviously, Fletcher Cox is their number one defensive tackle and will be for the foreseeable future. With Timmy Jernigan playing alongside Cox in the middle, Nada can rotate in and give quality snaps to replace Bo Allen, who they lost in free agency. A man that we know can make an impact on the game, Nada won't be required to carry a big load like he did earlier in his career with the Ravens. Managing his snaps as well, he'll be able to provide great experience as a solid role player to throw into the mix. Although the Eagles lost their top corner in free agency as Patrick Robinson heads to the Saints, Philly did trade for Daryl Worley from the Panthers, and again, This draft is full of secondary help if they choose to go that route. Defensively, the Eagles will still provide opposing quarterbacks nightmares. On the flip side of the ball, the addition of Mike Wallace was a strong one. I know I touched on this before, but Wallace at age 31 is still fast enough to get behind a defense and as a number three wide receiver will likely fill the role that Torrey Smith left behind this offseason. Losing Brent Selleck and Trey Burton in free agency, the Eagles recently filled their tight end need with Richard Rodgers, who comes over from the Packers. Oh yeah, and they get Carson Wentz back from injury next year. The real question mark for me is Frank Reich's departure to become the head coach in Indy. We saw this last year too with Atlanta when Kyle Shanahan left for San Francisco. Steve Sarkeesian stepped in for the Falcons, and their offense never quite looked the same this past year. An offensive genius. Reich leaves some pretty big shoes to fill in Philly, but at least for the Eagles, they hired in-house with a guy that's been around the system that Peterson was comfortable running as an offensive guy himself. For that reason, I don't think this will cause the Eagles too much trouble next year. Okay, moving on to the losers in free agency, where I'm transitioning from a team with plenty of quarterback talent to a team that is in desperate need of some, the Arizona Cardinals. The Cardinals, in just a year's span of time, go from looking like a contender to looking lost. With the retirement of Carson Palmer, the Cardinals were in need of a quarterback, and everyone knew it. 
they really should have drafted one a year or two ago given Palmer's history of injuries, but after failing to do that, they also dropped the ball so far this offseason. They missed on every big-name quarterback and instead paid Sam Bradford $20 million for next season alone. Yeah, Bradford, with a deteriorating knee. You know what that means? It's not going to get any better. He's had a problem with this for years, and it's the reason why he lost the job last season in Minnesota in the first place, so he's obviously not your long-term answer. And in the draft, the Cardinals are selecting way too low at 15 to have a shot at one of the top prospects. To make things worse, they've shown no motivation to trade up so far, and let me pose this question to tie things back together. If Philadelphia was asking for a first-round pick for Nick Foles, and you're not going to get a guy at 15, why wouldn't you trade for him? You know what he brings to the table after being in the league for years, and basically what you're saying is that you feel like you can get a better talent with that pick than you would with Foles, the Super Bowl MVP. Arizona, look around. Everywhere you go in the NFC, especially in your division, Seattle has Russell Wilson, San Francisco has Jimmy G, and L.A. has Jared Goff. Everyone in your division, heck, maybe everyone in your conference, has a franchise quarterback. You're going to be irrelevant very, very fast without one, and you've done nothing to put yourself in a position to even take a chance on a guy. Loser. All right, next. How about the Jets? They put all of their chips in one basket during the Kirk Cousins sweepstakes, and they fell short of signing him. So now they're left with an old man in Josh McCown and somebody who's n- who nobody's seen in three years with Teddy Bridgewater. Clearly, they're going to get a guy in the draft, but in terms of free agency, the Jets lost this offseason. In a division with Brady, all of the other AFC East teams seem to be scrambling to find their franchise guy, and the Jets are long overdue to find that person. They just haven't been able to so far. They signed Terrell Pryor, who Washington couldn't wait to get rid of, and Isaiah Crowell, who couldn't even get a long-term deal in Cleveland after being undrafted, so it doesn't seem like the ceiling for those guys is very high. Not to mention, they released their best defensive player in Muhammad Wilkerson. They did make some moves along the offensive line, but they also just fired their offensive line coach, so there are still questions along their front. For a team that some thought overachieved last year in a 5-11 season, the Jets still have a lot of ground to make up for. Okay, I'm not going to take up as much time on the losers of free agency because that's just not as much fun for me, but what I do want to talk a little bit more about is that some teams that I wouldn't necessarily place on top of my winner board this offseason, but are still making great strides for the future. When you talk about the future of the league, I don't think you can do it without mentioning Jimmy Garoppolo and the 49ers. Although I miss him in New England, I think that he's a great fit in San Francisco, and I absolutely love what John Lynch has done ever since taking over as the 49ers GM. Let's not forget about how much of a gamble this was in the first place. Lynch, who was a great player in Tampa Bay and in Denver for years in the NFL, was an analyst after retiring from the league. I did love watching him cover games and thought that he brought great insight from a unique perspective, 
But the bottom line is that he never had a front office position, period, before taking a six-year deal with the 49ers. So far, though, it's been fun to see what he's done. Going out and grabbing Kyle Shanahan was a great start for an offense that needed a solid scheme to make up for lack of talent early on. Before they even stepped foot on the field, everyone was impressed with the 49ers draft last year, highlighted by their first-round selections of Solomon Thomas and Reuben Foster. Thomas, who has had a slow start to his career, still has promised to develop into a solid defensive lineman, and his story with Lynch is just a fun one. Lynch, who never finished school at Stanford, re-enrolled after he retired from the NFL. That's when he met Thomas, who was a true freshman at the university. These guys somehow were in class together, and they developed a special bond. Lynch got to know Thomas firsthand before drafting him in a unique story that you just won't hear every day. For Foster, he was a top-five talent in the draft that fell all the way to 31, where the 49ers traded back up to grab him. Persisting off-the-field issues have hurt Foster's development, but with a solid cast of guys around him, it's still early to say that he can't shake those issues and be a dominant force in a San Francisco defense that just added Richard Sherman to a team-friendly deal. Just another great move for them, with nothing but upside and the opportunity to still draft secondary help in the first round. There are still questions for San Francisco on the offensive side of the ball, trying to get help around Jimmy G, but Marquise Goodwin was a pleasant surprise for them at receiver last year. They needed to figure out the running back position after letting go of Carlos Hyde, but I love the signing of Jarek McKinnon from the Vikings. A do-it-all back, Shanahan will be able to use McKinnon as a runner inside, outside, and flank him out as a receiver out of the backfield. He'll play as a nice piece to start with the 49ers offensively. I also really like what the Titans have done over the past couple of off-seasons. Bringing in Mike Vrabel this year as their head coach was a strong signing, in my opinion, after coordinating the Texans' top-notch defense for the past few seasons. And the Titans haven't been shortchanged of signing former Patriots either, with Logan Ryan last year and Deion Lewis and Malcolm Butler this offseason. For those reasons alone, I'd like to put them on my winner board, but I just can't seem to get over those new uniforms. Man, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. The Titans looked sharp before, and boy, am I going to miss those white helmets. Just don't like those new uniforms. All right, back to being serious. I'll give you one more team, and then it's time for me to move on. How about the Oakland Raiders? I'm a big Gruden fan myself, and it'll be nice to see Chucky back on the sidelines after being in the broadcast booth for the past eight years. There are questions surrounding how he'll adjust to the changes in the game after being out of the league for so long, but he's started to answer those questions with a busy offseason and a changing culture in Oakland while they're still there. They've gotten rid of a lot of players, but how about the signings they made? I look most notably to Doug Martin and Jordy Nelson. These are two guys that, if they can stay healthy, provide much-needed help around Derek Carr. The Raiders' rushing offense particularly faltered last year, and signing Doug Martin from Tampa Bay uh, may have a lot of upside if he can stay healthy. With Marshawn Lynch sticking around for at least one more season, this is a good way for Gruden to balance both of their snaps. 
and clearly we know what kind of a player Oakland is getting with Jordy Nelson. With Amari Cooper on one side and Jordy on the other, it'll be fun to see Carr sling it next year. Now they just have to figure out their defense in a bad way, but they have some good real estate in the draft for that. So, speaking of changes in the game, I'd like to talk about something that people have been asking me about a lot. A couple of weeks back, in my first mock draft, I had Saquon Barkley falling all the way to the sixth pick in the draft, and I've said that I think he may even fall further than that. People have looked at me like I'm absolutely nuts for this, but at least I don't think so. So let me give you a little bit of reasoning here. I've always been of the mindset that you build your team from the center out. You have to beef up your offensive line to keep whatever quarterback you have upright. And any running back looks good when the O-line is pushing defenders five yards off the line of scrimmage at the snap. Just as an example, look at DeMarco Murray. In 2014 with Dallas, DeMarco Murray had a career-high 1,845 yards rushing. Dallas drafted Zeke soon after and were able to get rid of Murray after his best season. But why would they do that? Well, Dallas's offensive line is filled with pro bowlers and a few all-pro talents. I'm not discrediting Ezekiel Elliott here, especially after what we saw last season when the Cowboys were without him, because he is a special talent. But what I am saying is that a well-constructed offensive line can make an average running back look great, and the evidence is DeMarco Murray. Since that season, Murray spent one year in Philadelphia, was cut, and spent only two seasons in Tennessee before they just decided to go a different direction as well with Derrick Henry. Now on the last leg of his career, past the age of 30, Murray's best days look like they're behind him, and he's never looked the same since he left Dallas. Maybe that's because he was a product of the best O-line in the league. Okay, how about this? I was watching NFL Network the other day, and they had a list of the top 10 greatest rushing seasons of all time. This list was full of studs. You got Earl Campbell, Jim Brown, Barry Sanders, LaDainian Tomlinson, Chris Johnson for his 2,000-yard season, Eric Dickerson, Adrian Peterson, and yes, even O.J. Simpson. But the funny thing about this list is that only one running back on the entire list had one playoff win that season, period. And that was Terrell Davis in 1998. Okay, so let's think about that one for a second. Does anybody remember who the quarterback was for the Denver Broncos in 1998? Oh yeah, that's right. Some guy by the name of John Elway. Now try and tell me that didn't have anything to do with the Broncos' playoff success. Yeah. The Broncos were also coached by Mike Shanahan that year, who's made 1,000-yard rushers out of guys like Olandis Gary, Ruben Drones, Mike Anderson, Tatum Bell, and Alfred Morris. Actually, Shanahan's had 12 different 1,000-yard rushers in his backfield alone. That could be because of his patented zone-blocking scheme, because those guys were all fourth-round guys on, including Terrell Davis, who was selected in the sixth round. My point is, especially in the NFL nowadays, where the dynamic has shifted to being a past-first league, having a star running back doesn't matter as much as it used to if you have a solid offensive line and a good scheme. I'm not saying the running back position doesn't matter in general, but having a stud guy in the backfield definitely doesn't translate to playoff success. 
So when you ask me if I'd rather have a Leonard Fournette with the fourth pick in the draft or Kareem Hunt or Alvin Kamara who can do more than just pound the rock in the third round, I'm 100% going to go with the latter. Well, all this talk about the draft has me itching to reveal my next mock draft, so let's get right into it. Here we go with Eddie's Mock Draft 3.0. With the first pick in the NFL Draft, the Cleveland Browns select... Sam Darnold, quarterback, USC. My last mock, I had the Browns taking Josh Allen at number one, but that was just for the argument. I think that Darnold is the guy for Cleveland here, and all the Allen talk is just a smokescreen leading up to the draft. I could totally see John Dorsey laughing with his buddies, drinking a beer, saying, yeah, go tell everyone we're taking Allen, just to throw everyone off. We know Cleveland is taking a QB at number one overall, and the issues with Darnold are far less severe than with Allen. Accuracy is an issue that just sometimes can't be fixed, and a big arm doesn't always translate to success in the NFL. Just ask Jamarcus Russell. With Darnold, his long release can be crafted, and we've seen Jordan Palmer already work with him on that leading up to the draft. Sitting behind Tyrod Taylor for a season can do wonders for a guy that already looks and feels NFL-ready. Let him develop for a year, and he'll have the potential to fill a position that has been vacant for the Browns for far too long. Darnold's the guy. Don't second-guess this one. At number two, we have a trade. The Giants have been looked at as the wild card throughout this entire draft process, and after going back and forth on who they should take at number two, they decide to collect picks and trade out. Trying desperately to move up into the top ten, the Buffalo Bills shoot up the draft board and take Josh Allen, quarterback, Wyoming. There are risks with taking Allen this high, but after getting rid of Tyrod Taylor, the Bills desperately need to figure out the quarterback position. With the Jets picking third, Buffalo wants to jump in front of their division rival and grab the dude with the big arm to sling it in the harsh New York winter weather. The Bills take their chances on Allen to be their guy of the future after his impressive combine and pro day and trust that Sean McDermott will work with him on his accuracy woes. The Bills take a shot at Allen with the second overall pick. I've been pretty consistent in saying that the Jets will draft Josh Rosen with the third pick, and that's not changing this time around. The Jets grab the California kid that will light it up in the Big Apple. Being used to the UCLA spotlight, New York needs to figure out their quarterback issues with Josh McCown and Teddy Bridgewater. With Bridgewater being a toss-up, I think it's a great fit for Rosen to have a guy like McCown in the QB room with him to help him develop and can even play early in the year if the team doesn't feel like he's ready day one, which is a long shot in my mind. When you watch Rosen play, it's clear that he has the prettiest ball out of the bunch. Footwork, ball placement, pretty good arm strength, it's all there. The Jets grab their franchise guy at number three. With the fourth pick, I finally have the Browns taking a guy I've been tiptoeing around this high for some reason. At four, the Browns take Minka Fitzpatrick, safety, Alabama. I've been holding off on this one for far too long now. 
Minka's a great athlete that would fit right into Greg Williams' defensive scheme in Cleveland. And GM John Dorsey loves to grab guys that can fill more than one role through the draft. After trying to get a guy like this in Jabril Peppers last year, the Browns pick up the pieces and find a major upgrade in Minka Fitzpatrick. With the ability to cover the slot, blitz off the edge, and drop back into zone coverage, Minka can do a little bit of everything. It'll be fun to see how he's used in Cleveland on a defense that is in major need of a dynamic athlete. Denver's on the clock at fifth overall, and I'll stay consistent in saying that they'll pick Denzel Ward, corner, Ohio State. After trading away Aqib Tlaib, the Broncos are in the market for a corner who can lock down receivers on the outside in man coverage. Ward is far and away the best at this in a deep draft class and fills a major hole for the Broncos now that Tlaib is gone. Ward will be a great piece in Denver's mile-high defense for years to come. At 6, I have the Colts taking Bradley Chubb, defensive end, NC State. I've heard the rumors that the Browns would like to take Chubb at 4, but with as many needs as they have on both sides of the ball, I don't see them adding to a strength after drafting Miles Garrett with last year's first overall pick. What we do know is that Indianapolis would love for Chubb to fall to 6, and I think that this is a real possibility with all the teams that need a quarterback higher in the draft. The Colts ranked second to last in the league in sacks last season, and Chubb fits the mold to help them turn that around in a hurry. I heard someone say if Garrett and Chubb were in the same draft class, they would have taken Chubb first overall. That's some high praise for a guy that falls all the way to sixth on my board. I don't see him slipping any further. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers are up at seven and they take the best player available, Saquon Barkley, running back, Penn State. This could be a sleeper team to snatch Barkley in the top 10. We all know the incredible combine numbers and the athletic ability that has Barkley so highly touted coming out of college, but what people haven't been talking about is the Bucks' need for a running back. They took their chances with Doug Martin, who showed a lot of promise early in his career, but an injury-plagued past couple of years led to Tampa Bay not renewing his contract. Tampa also ranked 27th in overall rushing yards last season before losing Martin, and their leading rusher was Peyton Barber with just 423 yards on the year. Don't be shocked if Tampa grabs Barkley if he's somehow still available at number 7. Chicago's on the clock at number 8. And with protection still available for the young Mitchell Trubisky, the Bears select Quinton Nelson, guard, Notre Dame. The Bears gave up 39 sacks last season, and in the middle of their offensive line, they caved at points while showing they weren't consistently able to keep Mike Glennon or Trubisky upright. If they want their franchise quarterback to last, they need to go out and grab someone to protect him. With one of the safest picks in the draft, Chicago pulls from the Notre Dame pipeline and picks Nelson to go hand-in-hand with Trubisky and the young talent the Bears are developing in the coming years. We have another trade at number 9. I alluded to this last week, and now I'm making it official in my third mock draft. 
San Francisco trades down after missing out on guys that they liked higher on the board to accumulate draft picks, and New England slides into the bottom half of the top 10 to pick Baker Mayfield, quarterback, Oklahoma, as their heir apparent to Tom Brady. Deadly accurate, good footwork, a leader's mentality, and a hard work ethic give Mayfield a raw template that the Patriots can mold in the coming years. While his personality may be a little rough around the edges, the Patriot way is the saving grace for Baker as he'll go to the right system and develop as the next quarterback for the Patriots when touchdown Tommy decides to hang him up. This is going to be Josh McDaniel's project in the locker room. The Patriots have always had a younger quarterback backing up Brady and don't think that his age 41 season will be the outlier. Even after his record-breaking 2007 season, the Patriots picked up Kevin O'Connell in the third round of the draft in the event that something happened to Brady. Belichick's always wanted to leave the Patriots in a position to continue winning after his departure, and just because there's whatever going on between him and Brady doesn't change that. In an out-of-character move for the Patriots, they move up to take a quarterback that some may consider to be a changing character for the team. Baker Mayfield becomes a Patriot at number 9. At 10, I'm going to stay put on the Raiders picking Roquan Smith from Georgia. We know that the Raiders need help all over defensively, and John Gruden has been trying to bring in guys who he knows will improve the locker room culture. Outside of being a great athlete that can explode and make plays all over the field, Smith is regarded as one of the best leaders in the draft. Don't think that kind of praise doesn't mean something to a guy like Gruden that's just coming back from a big layoff in his head coaching career. The Raiders grab Roquan Smith at 10 as a guy who can set the tone for the locker room defensively. Well, that was the big reveal of this edition of the Murata Mode, so I won't take up much more of your day. As always, I want to thank everyone for tuning in and listening and urge you to continue to do so as I come out with more content in the future. It's been a lot of fun for me to do the show, and I hope you guys are having just as much fun listening as I have doing it myself. As always, I'm your host, Eddie Murata. Until next time, catch you later, knuckleheads.